Let's get back to Romans 7. What are you saying? I want to start tonight by, um, well, actually, let me read the text. and uh, Let's start with verse 4 and uh, read verses 5 and 6 of uh, Romans 7, verses 4, 5, and 6. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Let's see if we can cover a little of that tonight. I want to start by kind of uh, tying up a couple of loose ends uh, concerning this being married to another. There are just some things that I, I, I wanted to point out to you that I, that I thought were uh, an encouragement and a, an expansion of the whole idea of being married to Christ. So let me do that real quickly, and then we'll, we'll jump into verse 5 and 6. What does it mean to be married to Christ? Well, it means that I have entered into a legal, yet a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that is as comprehensive as marriage. Now... We got any married folk in here? Well, it's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? <laughs> this, this thing called marriage is pretty comprehensive. Well, you have entered into a legal relationship with Jesus Christ that is as sweeping and demanding and as comprehensive as that of marriage. So what it means specifically is things like this. For instance, I mentioned this last week. You and I are one flesh with Jesus Christ. Um, there is no more intimate relationship than the one that you and I enjoy with the King of Kings. We looked at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 29 and 30. You remember uh, the text says, I'm not talking about marriage, I'm talking about Christ. That is our relationship. It's, it just really boggles the mind that, they, that the language of the New Testament is to use the one flesh idea to describe our relationship with Jesus Christ. So it means that. Secondly, it also means not only am I to enjoy this marvelous intimacy with the Savior, but I am also in total and entire submission to him. That's what marriage involves, a bride being in submission to her husband. That's the second thing it means, ladies and gentlemen, is that not only do I enjoy this intimacy, I am in entire submission and subjection to uh, my Savior. Thirdly, it means that the relationship is permanent. How long, for how long am I married to Christ? Until the next time I sin? That's utter foolishness. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. I am in a permanent, personal, intimate, yielded relationship to Jesus Christ. Fourth, it means that his name is my name. That is, I get his name. Uh, And I might remind you that the New Testament points out that his name is above every name. I I enjoy the, uh, the rights and privileges of bearing the name to whom I'm married. Um... 
Fifthly, his standing, or his position, is my position. There's a statement that's made in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. Uh, and raised up, raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So my, my position, I, I want to say standing, but it's described as sitting here. So my position is the same position as that of my, my bridegroom. I am seated with Christ. You know, guys, um, that means, above, uh, among many other things, that his righteousness is my righteousness. Um, and, and the devil tries to rob you of that. He points to my individual failings, my individual sins, and, and makes us look inward and forgetting our standing, our position. My position is his position. And then sixthly, it also means that I enjoy some of the same privileges that he does. One to mention is I have access to the Father as my Savior has access to the Father. Now, those are just some things I wanted to point out, but let me uh, underscore this. I mentioned this last week. What is the purpose of this union? Very clearly pointed out in verse 4 that we should bear fruit to God. I, I, I mention it again because I didn't say this last week, and I wanted to... Um, you know, folks, it's a, um, it's a pr- pretty poor bride who marries somebody only for the things that she can get out of him. The, the emphasis here in verse 4 is that we, we aren't married to another to get anything. We're married to another to bear fruit. We're married to another to give something, not to get something. You know, and, and I think you, you, uh, so much of the time you, in discussion with uh, Christians, they talk about um, uh, come to Christ and you'll have this forgiveness and happiness and, and you'll be delivered from a particular sin. Well, that's a pretty poor bride that concentrates on only what she's going to get out of this marriage. The emphasis of the New Testament is not what you're going to get out of it. The emphasis is on your bearing fruit to God. Um, We exist to bring forth fruit to God. And happiness is a byproduct of doing that. Uh, It's the natural byproduct of seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So uh, the, the purpose of this union is that we bear fruit. Not that we get anything. The purpose is not your own happiness. The purpose is that we bear fruit. And until you're married to Christ, you'll not bear that fruit. It's impossible to bear that fruit. Um, That's the dimension that uh, I think is often forgotten when we talk about we like to think of ourselves as Christian and we got a ticket to heaven stuck in our pocket and we got sprayed with a go to asbestos so that we wouldn't go to hell and, and we got uh, you know power and all this business. Guys, the purpose of this union, says verse 4, is that we bring forth, that we should bear fruit to God. Now, that's enough um, about verse 4. Let's take a look at verses 5 and 6. Now, you will notice that verse 5 opens with the word for. Uh, which connects it with what has gone before, I mean, uh, prior to that. It says, for, because it's a further explanation of what he has already said, what he's already said in verse 4. Um, this is, he is drawing this implication, he is drawing this application out of what he has just said in verse 4. Verses 5 and 6 are a unit. 
And they're a very important unit, guys. Um, verse 5 is a positive statement. Verse 6 is a negative statement. But they are a unit. Um, the two verses, verses 5 and 6, are critical in your understanding of the rest of chapter 7. Because the rest of what is said in chapter 7, and actually all the way through uh, verse 4 of chapter 8, is Paul dealing with objections to what he has said in verses 5 and 6. Actually, verses 4, 5, and 6. Um, understanding verses 5 and 6 are imperative in understanding the rest of chapter 7. Um, and what, what he's doing in these two verses is describing this, this relationship that we're now in, comparing it to the one that we came from, and why this new one is so essential. What I want to do is kind of pause for a minute, and, and I hope this... I'm not really good at this, y'all. You know, uh, all of that overhead um, projector stuff, I, I don't do that very good, and I don't do this very good, but I thought this might help clarify so that we don't lose you. Um, Paul is contrasting, and he's going to contrast and compare relationships, guys. And he's going to do that in verses 5 and 6. And again, it's a further application of verse 4. But the, this, the, the two relationships that are being contrasted, he begins with my old husband, uh, my old marriage, let's, talk, let's say. Now, that old marriage, of course, was analogous to living under law. Now, in, in contrast to that, he talks about my new husband, my new marriage. That's where the law is dead. That's the language that he's used in verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. Of course, this is the unregenerate state. Now, this, that word is not, not found in the text. Unregenerate. Um, and this is the regenerate state. But, but this, is, uh, this, this is language that he does use. I mean, he's, he's certainly used that piece of language. But that this thing, this, this old husband is dead. And he uses the language of being alive in this new marriage. Now he's going to take it another step. And you'll see in verses 5 and 6, he is going to talk about life in the flesh. Versus, if you look in verse 6, the newness of the spirit. And interestingly enough, he introduces the Spirit's work. That's brand new in this little section here. So newness of... I'm having a little trouble here. The newness of the Spirit versus this life in the flesh. This is the negative, I said, in verse 5. This is the positive. But all of this language, guys, uh, that you find packed into these texts are comparing two lives. The one, you know, when I was under the law in that old marriage, but uh, that was when I was unregenerate. And, of course, that, that husband has died. And, um, uh, or that husband, I, I got a new husband. I got a new marriage because that old one died. And now I'm regenerate and I'm alive. And, and I, I used to be living in the flesh, but now I'm uh, living in the news of the Spirit. I hope that somewhat brings you along. Uh, all this language that you've got in these six verses is he's comparing and he's contrasting. One life that was under law, and another life that is married to another. But the language that he uses, he, just, he keeps adding different language to describe the same thing. The language that he uses in verse 5 is, 
for when we were in the flesh. He didn't use that language in verses 1 through 4, but he does use it in verse 5. He, um, when we were in the flesh is the same thing as being married to that older husband or being under law. You with me? When we were in the flesh, and then he gives you some, some uh, details of um, life lived in the flesh. Now, I said when we open up Romans chapter 7, guys, that, that Paul is going to describe the role and the purpose and the function of the law. And I don't think Christians understand that very well. Um, Christians, <laughs> Christians like rules. They like formula. They like, um, they like secrets. Now, I've got a book in my um, um, library, and the title of it, I forget exactly, but it's called The Secret of, I, th- I think it's Godly Living, but I, I could be here. The Secret of, let me just tell you, there are no secrets. There's no mystical formula and a mystical handshake that's going to you know, let you into some, that, that's Gnosticism, ladies and gentlemen. Gnosticism said that there was this secret little gnosis, this knowledge out there. If you got that, there is no such thing. There aren't any secrets. There aren't any formula. Uh, I hate to say this in front of my good friend Bob Wood, um, but because Bob Wood, he's my hero. Um, but it, the Christian church loves Bill Gothardism. Uh, you know, okay, you got this problem. All right, then watch these five steps and we'll fix it. Uh, you go, oh, you got rebellious children? Okay, here's what you do. Let me mark this out for you. And, and we're all sitting out there, all 47,000 of us. And we're saying, oh, okay. I'll just run right home and do that. And, of course, within minutes we discover, I must have missed one of the, the steps because it didn't work in my home. We like the steps. We like the formula. But, ladies and gentlemen, um, I think there's a great deal of confusion about how this whole thing gets fleshed out. So what we're going to try to do is make that a little bit clearer for you, hopefully. Um, but what you have here is him contrasting the life that we used to live in the flesh. All right? Now, guys, um, it, it, this I hope illustrates, but it, when he uses that language of life in the flesh, he's simply talking about uh, a life in an unregenerate state. Unfortunately, uh, that word flesh is used so many ways in the New Testament, it's, it's, scary, to some, uh, to, to, it's scary to interpret. But I, I think it's pretty clear. But for instance, there's all kinds of ways that you can use the term flesh. Um, uh, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Well, um, that is using the term to mean all of mankind. Or um, if you've got your Bibles open... If you can find Galatians, which is really just the next book. Excuse me, it's the three books over. Um, Galatians chapter 2. Here's a use of the term. Um, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son. What's that? What's that flesh? That's just the life that he presently lives in the body. But if you'll look at the same book, Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, you'll find the word again. For the flesh lusts against the spirit. Well, there is an instance where you find uh, the flesh being used to describe and point to uh, sensuality. It's just used a, a lot of different ways. But here, in, chapter, in verse 5 of chapter 7 of Romans, it refers to the opposite 
of life lived in the Spirit. That's what you're going to see in verse 6. So the opposite of life lived in the Spirit is the life lived in the flesh. In fact, look at chapter 8 of Romans. That's right, just 8, 4. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Do you see that contrast right there in 8, 4? Well, that's what you're going to get in 5, 6 of chapter 7. So, when Paul describes us in the flesh, he is describing man in his unrenewed legal state. Um, you, you see him in his, in his ruined condition versus what he'll tell us in verse 6 is this newness of life in the Spirit. Um, Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That's the contrast here. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. But that which is born of the Spirit, which we'll get in verse 6. We're not going to cover that tonight. But you, uh, um, the life born of the Spirit is one thing that's being contrasted. Now, are you, the life in this newness of Spirit is the one that's married to another. Just the same, using different images, analogies, that's what Paul is doing. All right. So, this life lived in the flesh, he says... Um, the sinful passions, uh, you know, we know all about those things. There's not much definition that's needed for the sinful passions. Those are just natural appetites that are gone bad due to the, due to the fall. You know, when, when those appetites are kept in their legitimate biblical place, they're good things, but when they become inordinate, they are sinful. They are sinful passions. Um, we, de- we begin to desire things that are forbidden. Uh, when I was in the flesh, those sinful passions, and here's a clause, ladies and gentlemen, that I don't, I'm not sure that many of you have ever seen before. Those sinful while I was over here, not married to another, while I was in the flesh, there were sinful passions which were aroused by the law. Now, guys, um, the law has a one of the things that the law does is that it stirs up sinful passions in my unregenerate state. Does the law help me as a Christian handle the problem of sin that is in my life? Well, yes and no. It helps me in this regard. It helps me by defining the problem. But when it comes to the battle that I'm in with sin, um, it only makes things worse. It arouses. While I'm in the flesh, the law cannot and does not deliver me from sin. In fact, it produces it, or at least certainly arouses it. Guys, um, you've seen this before. Um, you know, one, of the, one of the reasons that I'm such an arch opponent of legalism in all of its forms is because legalism does not produce what it wants to produce. It, it, wants to, it wants to eliminate alcoholism when, in fact, the end result is that more alcoholism is produced by legalism than, than is stopped by legalism. Um, did you ever... Um, um, hear of kids who were raised in very strict 
um, I don't want to call it, very strict homes who go off to college. And in many instances, that there is this arousal of sin as opposed to dampening or, or muzzling or restraining sin. Guys, have you ever told your toddler, don't you do that? And the toddler does that. Law arouses sin, says the text. When we were in the flesh, there were certain passions that became sinful, aroused by the law, um, uh, legitimate natural appetites that went bad, and those things got inflamed by hearing of the law. That is, those passions aroused by the law, were at work in our members. Um, the members, of course, that are in view are... Um, I mean, Paul is using this language a lot, the language of members. It just has to do with um, um, all of my parts are affected. All of my bodily parts, all of my mental parts, all of my emotional parts. All of those things are aroused by the law and working in the members, in my members. Um, and the result of that is to bear fruit to death. Now, it's somewhow unfortunate that we can't, uh, no, no, time to handle verse 6, but what, what Paul's doing is showing you the negative of living under law or living in the flesh or living in an unregenerate state. That is, while in that state, there, is, um, there are sinful passions that get aroused by the law in all of my members, and the, all, the, the, the conclusion of all that is... Death. Um, the life of sin is a life of death. Death is the consequence um, that follows on the heels of my sin. Now that's, he is going to try and um, contrast this other life in verse 6, but that's what he wants you to think about right now. That's what that life was. Now I want to leave you uh, in my next 11 minutes I want to leave you with some lessons from the text. Um, because, gang, in, in all honesty, that one text should shape the way you do parenting. For one thing. I mean, it should influence the way you do parenting. It should influence a lot of things. And I'll tell you about one of them that, that I, just in terms of application. But, guys, first of all, you know, I think, well, that law doesn't save us from our sin. Did you know that it aggravates sin within us? The very law that prohibits also inflames us to do those things because we are, we are impure, or that is, we have sinful passions, or that we have members that have been defiled. Thus, um, one of the things that you, one of the lessons that we learn, guys, is. The law is not going to produce anything that is going to uh, redeem us. Thus, you see, to ever get to this, this different life, married to another, it's going to take a, a, um, a spiritual revolution on the inside of my soul. It's going to require the rebirth. If I'm ever going to move from life in the flesh to life in the spirit... The Spirit is going to have to author something very monumental in me, ladies and gentlemen. The power of sin 
is so dominant and so powerful in my life that even the law cannot deliver me. In fact, it does the opposite. You know, guys, think of the absolute... Well, let me, let me say that. That's the first thing. The second lesson. Morality will never reform culture. It'll never reform individuals. But morality is the constant cry of all of our educational institutions and our societal institutions. You know, I, I sometimes... Uh, this is an overstatement. I almost chuckle. I was about to say I weep. But I almost chuckle when I hear that our Shelby County School Board has made another decision as to how they're going to handle uh, guns in schools. Here's how they're going to do it. Here's how they'll do it. They'll put metal detectors at every door. That'll handle it. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, everything in your culture cries for it. Here's how we solve man's problem. Morality. Morality. We've got to insist on morality. And that does nothing but inflame the problem. More rules. More law. More um, control. Guys, um, y you know, of course this is a political statement, but, but it, I hope it has some kind of spiritual content and value to it. You spend as much money as you like on trying to fix the school system and it ain't going to work. Because the, 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 the school system does not understand this one simple principle that law arouses sin. It inflames the rebel heart. It doesn't, it doesn't quiet it. And then finally, in, um, the way to overcome sin, ladies and gentlemen, is not to teach morality but to preach the gospel. Um, I want to come back to this in a minute, but I just want to tell you something. And, I, and I'm, I, this is kind of risky. It's kind of controversial. What I'm, uh, uh, I thought, but it does illustrate my point because I know that some of you don't agree with what I'm about to say. I, I just tell you that one of my motivations has to do with Romans chapter 7, verse 5. Um, I've taken some flack, some heat. Actually, I've taken some heat from some of my presbytery brothers but I've taken some for the same issue, but I've taken some flack and some heat from some of you because you don't agree with me. And it has to do with the fight against abortion. Um, I have I get a call a year. Well, that's that's an overstatement, but it sounds good. Um, I get I get a call every now and then. <laughs> Maybe I got it once. <laughs> I, I get a call every now and then about whether we'll put the crosses up in our Long, you know the the hundreds of crosses, et cetera, et cetera, uh, which makes a statement about abortion. Now, ladies and gentlemen, please don't misunderstand me. I am dead set against abortion. I call it murder, just like you do. Um, I am enthusiastically and passionately pro-life. Um, you know, surely you you know that much. But tell me, if I'm trying to communicate to that culture out there that what they're doing is wrong. How do you suggest I do that? Give them some more law! 
Because I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, that does nothing but arouse. It inflames the rebel heart. Morality, if I'm going to, if I'm going to produce morality, ladies and gentlemen, the best way to produce reality or morality is to preach the gospel. I want to see people move from a life that is under law to a life that is in the newness of the Spirit. How are you going to do that? By putting crosses up in the front yard? And telling them how wicked they've been? Or reminding them of how wicked they've been? Very honestly, ladies and gentlemen, I do see a purpose. I do see a benefit in those crosses in the lawn. It reminds Christians that we're opposed to abortion. That's a good thing. I'm, I'm not opposed to that. And, you know, there's some good churches. Germantown Baptist, very good church. They had them out there. I just want you to know that the reason that I'm opposed to it is because I don't think it helps. I think it inflames, just like this text says. You know, years ago, um, it's interesting how some some statements stick with you in the earth. There's this there's this story. Um, did you ever see this this special? Uh, I forget which who had it, but it was about this guy who uh, who he was called. I want to say he was called Mother Goose. And um, Mother Goose raised these geese, and um, he would be there when they when when they broke out of the little eggshells, and he would you know sing songs to them and you know pet them and whatever he does. I I don't know what he, but he um, he grew up with them from the very opening gun, you know, and then he developed this little lighter than air flying machine, and when the geese would fly south, he would fly with them. Did you ever hear that? <laughs> Thank you, Gail. Uh, and I, I'm somebody's, and I think he was called Mother Goose. Father Goose. Father Goose. Okay, Mother, Father, what the heck, Bob? You had to embarrass me in front of my friends, didn't you? Did you say that, Bob? I mean, did you say that Father Goose guy? And, and so the, the, the premise of this whole thing is, if I'm there when they're born, then they begin to, you know, close with me or... Or embrace me, and if I'm, I'm right there waiting when they come out of that egg. Well, I don't know whether he's right or wrong, but I mean, geese follow him when he flies in that little thing, and um, all of that to say, that's wasted four minutes. Um, all that to say, in my earliest stages of development, there were a few men that were right there when I was born. One of them was D. James Kennedy, and I never will forget him saying. Jesus went into the ghetto. But he didn't go into the ghetto to drag men out of the ghetto. He went in there to win them to himself. And then they came out of the ghetto themselves. How is it that we're going to change a ghetto heart, ladies and gentlemen? It is not going to be via more law. It is going to be through the proclamation and declaration of the glories and the beauties of this gospel that we have to preach. The one that says, oh, you know, you're married to another. This other life produces nothing but death. When I live that life in the flesh, if you'll skip all that middle stuff in there, in verse 5, you'll notice that the end of it, the last word, was death. I want you to notice one other thing about the text, and then I'll shut up and quit. Notice in verse 5, sin, law, 
death. All in the same verse. You want three words that describes the life that lived under the law? Those three will do it for you. Sin, law, death. Now, in verse 6, he's going to come back and contrast the life lived in the newness of the Spirit with that. In comparison with the sin, law, death life, here's the other one. Now, you've got to get verses 5 and 6 down because the rest of chapter 7, he's going to handle objections uh, that are aimed at those two statements. We'll stop there. Our Father, I do pray that you will um, teach your people that which is um, growing out of this text. And I pray that you will teach them um, rightly, accurately. And if I have failed, Lord, I pray that you will correct what damage I've done. But that you will give your people a great sense of celebration that the life being depicted in verse 5 is not the life that we have. It is not a life that will conclude in death. It is a life lived in the newness of the Spirit. It is a life that is eternal. It is a life that enjoys everlasting mercies. And I pray, O God, that the more we know about the life that we have in Christ, the more you will build within us a heart that celebrates. We commit ourselves to that, Father, and pray that your Spirit will produce it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks and good night.